Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast, normally explicit, is not so today. Hi, it's Saturday. I'm here with news about the Saturday show. You know what this Saturday is? It's Labor Day, which means the start of schools. Although, outside the Northeast, they started already, didn't they? Anyway, I bring you a couple of interviews. The first one is from 2018. A researcher named Sarah Brownwell, who is an education researcher and a neuroscientist, was on to explain what she found studying how gender affects students' perceptions of their own intelligence. She's with Arizona State University, still is. And the next interview I will bring you is from former Assistant Secretary of Education, Diane Ravitch. She'd just written a book, Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools. She said to me in the interview why she left the dark side of advocating for charter schools and why schools should stop testing children to death. Those interviews up next. When researchers at Arizona State University put together a finding of their paper that was called Who Perceives They Are Smarter? Exploring the Influence of Student Characteristics on Student Academic Self-Concept in Physiology, I noted on Twitter that it became one of those reductive things Oh, these goddamn men always thinking they're smarter than women. But I dug deeper into the study itself, and it's really interesting. It's really interesting how the researchers did their study, why they did their study, and what they actually found. So I wanted to talk to one of the researchers. Joining me now is Sarah Brownell, who's a neuroscientist and a full-time education researcher at the ASU School of Life Sciences. Hello, Sarah. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me what the idea behind conducting this study was? Sure. So I'm an education researcher, and I focus on improving the way we teach undergraduate biology education. And I've done many studies with students thinking about their experiences in undergraduate biology. And one thing that's happened nationally is we're transitioning the way we teach large enrollment biology courses away from traditional lecture, where a professor stands at the front of the room and just talks at students, to what we call active learning, where we have students work with each other in these classes, solving problems and building on each other's knowledge. And so 
in these classes, something that we've noticed is that who the students are seems to matter way more um, because students are looking at each other, they're talking to each other, they're having way more conversations with each other. And something that we heard, had heard in passing and talking to other students was students worried about basically feeling stupid. So this was their language that they would use. They would say, I'm really worried about sharing an idea because I'm really worried about how other people will perceive me and whether or not someone's going to make me feel like I'm, I'm stupid. Now, when you say students worrying about that, do you mean specifically women or do you mean women more than men sharing that fear? Yeah, so this originated from just talking to students, right? And so it was hard to actually discern whether it was just women or it was men and women. It seemed like it seemed uh, like it was more women than men, but we wanted to actually mm -hmm. set up to systematically study this. And, and I noted in your study that you nodded to some other studies that have been done, but of sciences, but of different sciences, harder sciences, where it's been documented that uh, there is a difference in self-perception between men and women. Is that right? Correct. There are prior studies that have shown um, that males tend to be more confident in their ability to do science. Some of these stem out of physics or math. There have been some prior studies in biology showing some gender differences, even though biology is a discipline where women are making up the majority of students. So in your typical biology classroom, women make up about 60% of, of students in the class. But what was distinct about our study and what other studies previously haven't done is actually comparing students to other students in the class. So other studies had looked at their perception of their intelligence broadly or their confidence broadly, but we were really interested in how they compared to another student, given this change in classroom where students are working with each other a lot more. Yeah, it's, so you're saying it's important how they compare to other students, not for any esoteric reason, but the new way of teaching is to put them in groups and reacting and interacting with other students is the course, is the coursework these days. Exactly. And you say that there are more women in biology. In fact, of the data set, which I guess means the students in the biology classes you were talking about, 64% of them were women. There are 130 women and 70 men in just the classes you studied. Right. And that's similar to uh, other classes that we've looked at. So if you look at most undergraduate biology classes, it ranges from anywhere to, to kind of 50 to 80 percent women. But it's uh, the average is about 60 percent women in those biology classes. So that's interesting because it's really different than classes like engineering classes, computer science classes, physics classrooms, where women are making up the minority of students in the class. Right. And so this presents a situation where historically biology was thought to be this really safe space space for women, where there was often assumed that there was no gender issue uh, in biology classes whatsoever. And in fact, some prior studies have actually used biology as the comparison group to studies done in computer science and physics because of the large numbers of women in biology. But what we're starting to think about here is that the numbers of women in these classes alone is not sufficient. You can't just stop by counting up the women. We have to actually dig a little deeper and, and determine kind of the underlying experience to see if their experience in the classroom is, is equivalent to men. Right. So tell me about your study and how you came to your results. Yeah, so we basically asked students two questions. We asked them, what percentage of the class do you think that you're smarter than? And then, given the fact that they're working with other students in the class, we asked them, comparing to that student that you work most closely with, do you think you're smarter or less smart than that student? And in both of those situations, we found a gender difference. We found that men were more likely to think that they were smarter than the person that they were working most closely with in class, and we found that men thought that they were smarter than a higher percentage of the class. 
Right. And so the headlines or most of the headlines that I saw were things like men more likely to think they're smart. Women downplay intelligence. An ASU study showed men are more likely to think they're smarter than their peers. Or in the uh, higher education times, male students consider themselves smarter than their classmates, even if their grades suggest otherwise. But here's the thing. Your study also showed that women consider themselves smarter than most of their classmates, too, just not to the same extent that men do, right, if I'm reading it right? Kind of. So if we take the average GPA in the class, it was about a 3.3. And so if you Mm -hmm. take a male with that 3.3 GPA, he thinks he's smarter than 66% of the class. Whereas if you take a woman with that same GPA of 3.3, she thinks she's smarter than 54% of the class. So theoretically, they should probably be thinking that they're about smarter than 50% of the class since that's the average student. So women are are slightly increasing their perception of, of their intelligence. Men are increasing that more. And I think the interesting question here is, do we want all students to try to get back down to a more accurate uh, level of of their perception of their intelligence? Or should we actually be focusing on that gap and trying to increase women? Yeah, that is interesting. In fact, I started thinking about this. Well, what's the right number? I suppose the accurate number would be 50, although in your class, it's actually quite possible that the accurate number is higher than 50, right? You could have high achievers in the class. Well, so with our analyses, we would have controlled for that, right? So again, looking at those kind of average students, it should come out as about 50%. But you're spot on in asking the question whether it was is actually better for the students to have an accurate sense of their intelligence compared to other students because if they have a slightly inflated uh, perception of their intelligence, that might actually lead to really good things for the students. Perhaps that leads to them feeling more confident in sharing out in that small group discussion. Perhaps that leads to them pitching ideas that might be a, a little bit more novel or a little bit more risky to share, and that might actually end up helping their learning long term. Right, right. We tell students of both genders, but probably in the sciences more, do we give this message to men than women? Believe in yourself. You could do it. And when the studies show that they believe in themselves maybe a little too much, the implication is, okay, tone it down a little bit. Yeah, so I think that the problem that we see with this is that there's a gap, right? The fact that there's a gender gap and that males have a higher perception of their intelligence, that is what we see as the problem, not necessarily the absolute number. We think that more research needs to actually be done in order to try to discern, is a little bit of overconfidence a good thing and is a lot of overconfidence maybe not such a good thing? Or is it something where with these students, even with every kind of increment up as far as confidence, maybe they're getting an additional boost, right? Yeah. And so and then you ask the question, um, just in the small groups to both men and women, uh, do you think you're smarter than the other members of the group? And there men, 60 percent said that they were smarter. And with women, it was what, 33 percent said they were smarter. Yeah. So men were about three times more likely than women to say that they were smarter than their group mate. Now, is that men comparing themselves to women, women comparing themselves to men, or everyone just comparing themselves randomly to whoever they're assigned? So we let students choose their groups in this class. So so these in these high enrollment classes, often you just let students self-assemble in their groups. And so the student decided who that person was that they worked most closely with. And so it was looking across all of those pairings men were still three times more likely uh, than women to think that they were smarter than their group mate. Right. And I guess the most interesting piece of data that 
you didn't provide or maybe you couldn't provide is with men assessing if they were smarter than the class as a whole, uh, women doing the same with men and women assessing if they were smarter than their group mate. And by smarter, we just mean having a higher GPA or that's how you conducted the study to well, let well, that be Well, we actually, this yeah. is an important point. We let students decide what smarter meant. So we actually asked students, how did they actually figure out that they were smarter or less smart than their group mate? And they, they used lots of different factors. They used whether or not a student could think through a problem faster. They used whether a student seemed to have done the homework. They used whether a student took on a leadership role in the group, uh, whether Mm -hmm. a student came up with really creative ideas. And so students were likely using various different ways of figuring out how they determined their own perception of their intelligence compared to their group mates. And I think that that's actually a really important factor here, that we let the students come up with their own definition of, of what they thought it meant to be smart in physiology. Were there differences in how men defined intelligence versus how women did? No, and that was something that was really surprising to us. There was no statistical difference between the reasons that men brought up and women brought up. So what it seems like is they're using the same uh, suite of reasons for how they're figuring out whether someone's smarter or less smart. It just might be that either men are not as hard on themselves or that women are more hard on themselves. But here is the big data point that I was really wondering about. The men being a lot overly optimistic about how smart they were or self-regarding, the women being a little bit. Were they right? How closely did it actually correlate to those particular individuals saying that I'm smarter than this percentage of the class? How accurate was their self-perception? I mean, could you, you know, was there a difference in the men and the women between uh, their ability to predict their place? Yeah. So that's a great question. It's an analysis that we didn't do, and we didn't do it because with these analyses, we're controlling for prior academic ability of the students, so we're controlling for their GPA, and that's going to impact their final grade in the class so much that their perception, any difference in perception, basically gets washed away. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. So I would predict that it would influence their final grade in the course, but it's very difficult to actually measure that because it's probably going to be such a small impact on their final grade. And so a lot of these kind of issues related to confidence or perception, it's really hard to actually show a tangible change in grade. But what is probably happening is it's a combination of a lot of these factors that are influencing that. I guess the uh, the big question I have is, is your contribution to the body of knowledge about the self-perception of students and gender, how would you describe it? Is this yeah. the first landmark study about biology? Does this give us extra information about just gender dynamics and sciences? Go ahead. What have you really indicated or shown yes. in your study? So I, I think it echoes prior work showing gender differences in science. I think the novel aspect of it is really looking at that perception of someone's intelligence compared to other students. And as these college classrooms are changing, we need to be caring a lot more about who students are working with and how those interactions with other students in the class could impact students' own perceptions. And while I think it's less interesting in terms of the impact on their grades itself, I think it's way more interesting 
interesting in terms of how their perceptions of their intelligence are going to impact other behaviors in the classroom, how much they're willing to share out their ideas, how much they're willing to take on a leadership role in the groups. And then how do other students then perceive them? So if a student has a higher perception of their intelligence compared to other students, if they participate more, as, as our study actually showed, that they are going to have a higher uh, self-reported participation rate, then do other students start to notice? And do, then do other students start to think that, that they're leaders? And do other students' behaviors then actually change? And do instructors actually look at those students and start to write letters of recommendation for those students as the top students? And is that where we start to see more of gender gaps? I'm all in favor of knowledge, and I'm also in favor of people having a, an a, more or less accurate perception of themselves. Mm -hmm. Though, as we talked about, having a little confidence is good. But just the basic fact that there are twice as many female students as men, how much rejiggering should be done with the life sciences yeah. itself to change the experience, to be more welcoming? I know that's a discussion with computer science, but with biology, there's a two-to-one ratio. It seems uh, decently welcoming to women. Yeah, that's a great question. So the undergraduate level, it is uh, welcoming, and even at the graduate level, but if you still look at faculty positions in biology, if you still look at career paths in biology, men are still dominating. And if you look at- Do you uh, think people, that's a function of, do you think maybe that's a function of time, that, it, that maybe this next generation will equal that out? So some people have argued that it's uh, it's due to kind of career decisions and life decisions and uh, and more women wanting to have families and taking on more family roles. We would argue, though, that these small little cuts in confidence and in uh, their perception of their abilities to do biology, maybe it's not going to affect their grade at the end of the course, or maybe it's not even going to affect their decision to persist in biology as an undergraduate, but we would predict that it's actually going to affect uh, them uh, more long term. And we do start to see gender biases in biology as we continue up uh, the, the ladder. The other thing to think about with this type of work is even though we're doing in biology, we would envision if biology is probably one of the, the safer places for women because of the majority of women in the class, that we would predict similar results should actually be apparent in physics classrooms, in chemistry classrooms, in engineering classrooms, in computer science classrooms. But actually, we would probably predict that the gaps are bigger. And so an area we'd like to take this is actually expanding into other disciplines, seeing if these gaps are bigger and seeing if, if these uh, factors can actually influence whether or not students are, are persisting in those domains as well. Sarah Brunell is a neuroscientist, but she's actually a full-time education researcher, and she was one of the authors of the study that asks and answers who perceives they are smarter exploring the influence of student characteristics on student academic self-concept in physiology. Thank you. Thanks. Diane Ravitch is the author of Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools. She comes to this reform or resistance movement in a fascinating way. She has essentially done a 180, although that assumes that we're on the same plane. So she's done a 180, but also thought of ways to reform the system that she never would have conceived of when she was working in the Bush and Clinton education departments. You know, No Child Left Behind? Dan Ravitch was one of the people who was making sure that the children weren't left behind, only she came to conclude that educationalism, which is saying that the schools will solve our social ills rather than the other way around, is the problem, not the solution. Diane, welcome. 
Thank you. Great to be with you, Mike. It's great to have you. I read your blogs all the time, and you are the kind of person and thinker that sometimes I agree with, sometimes I disagree with, but you put forth great arguments, and you always at least challenge my intellect. So... Before I even want to start with your prescription of education, tell me about the journey changing your mind. And I know you got new evidence, so you did. But was it hard for you? Was there ego involved? Were there breaking social ties involved in kind of turning your back on the pouring money into testing movement will save us all way of thinking? I had been on the conservative side and now call it the dark side uh, for many years advocating for testing, for accountability. I endorsed the idea of charters when they first came out in the late 80s, early 90s, and it seemed like a good idea. Well, why not try it? Let's have everyone have a go at running a school and see what happens. And over the years, I've been involved in several very high-powered conservative think tanks, uh, like the Thomas B. Fordham Institute in D.C., and also the Hoover Institution in Stanford, California. And I had a crisis of faith. And I realized that the testing was having disastrous effects, that it was turning children away from learning and into just test-taking. And I knew enough about the testing because I had spent seven years. I was appointed by President Clinton to the National Testing Board. And I learned a lot about testing enough so that I don't trust it. I don't trust standardized tests at all. And I can explain that in in a minute or two. Um, But also being on the inside of these conservative think tanks, there was a lot of discussion about why were so many charters failing. Mm-hmm. Nobody said that in public, but they were saying it in the inner circle. Yeah. And I was in the inner circle, and I said, well, wait a minute. Charter schools are supposed to save kids, and now we're trying to figure out what to do about all these failing charter schools, uh, schools that are, that are in academic emergency, and yet they have all this flexibility, and they're not doing a job. They said they would. So by 2007, eight, about then, I started writing a book, which is a confessional. It's called The Death and Life of the Great American School System, How Testing and Choice Are Undermining Education. And when I wrote that book, I lost my ties to all of these organizations, uh, and some of them were, were paying me a lot of money. Yeah. So I gave up the income that went with being on that side, and I also lost some people who had been very close friends who were no longer my friends because they couldn't believe that I had changed sides. So I changed sides. It was like a leap into the dark. I yeah. didn't know what would happen on the other side. So let's talk about Obama. It seems that there are some inklings that Obama might be, at least uh, as a person with an open mind, might be rethinking his position. I'm not even specifically asking you to read the tea leaves about what Atlantic article he retweeted or what he's saying. But let's just use him as a stand-in for a person who just wants to find the right solution and is going where they think the evidence is and maybe now is questioning the wholesale approach of everything with public schools is bad and charter schools are going to be our salvation. All right, fine. That was overdoing it. Let's take the best ideas of charters and marry it to a robust public education system with even strong unions. Uh, The problem is that right now the schools, whether they're charter or they're public schools, are trapped in this monomaniacal focus on test scores. Testing. So if everybody is forced to follow this script and everybody is labeling schools, the common thing, it was invented by Jeb Bush in Florida, and that, that is to label schools A through F. So if you have high scores, you're an A school. If you have low scores, you're an F school. And then the F school is set up to be closed and privatized. This is uh, what I call the test and punish regime. It's very demoralizing to... Everybody, really, unless you happen to be in a very affluent neighborhood, in which case you have an A school and things are fine. 
the fundamental problem is the standardized testing. Standardized testing is normed on a bell curve. The bell curve is designed never to close. So when people... Oh, can't, by definition. Can't, by yeah. definition, yeah. right. Like 1% of the kids are always going to be in the lowest 1%. Right. And there will always be a top half. There will always be a bottom mm-hmm. half. The top half will be overwhelmingly composed of kids who come from affluent neighborhoods where they don't have to worry about having a home, uh, having medical care, having food. And the bottom half will always be overwhelmed by kids with disabilities and kids who are English learners and kids who do have to worry about having to stay home because there's no one to take care of the family while their parent is sick. So what we have done for the past 20 years is to avoid the fundamental problem in education, which is the growing inequality in our society. The fact is that about half of the kids in this country are classified by federal standards as being low income. Mm -hmm. About 20% are in deep poverty. And this is the shame of our nation. And so instead of talking about how can we raise up families, how can we make sure that every child has access to medical care, how can we make sure that kids come to school ready to learn, we're talking about their test scores. And the test scores tell the same story over and over again. If you're poor, if you're an English learner, if you have a disability, you're in a failing school, we're going to close your school. And uh, Rahm Emanuel, for example, uh, created a place for himself of infamy by closing 50 public schools in one day. The studies that I've seen show that the kids did not go to better schools. They just had their lives uprooted. So what is the difference between the energy behind the uh, Waltons and DeVos and, say, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is a big supporter of charter schools, among their other education and testing initiatives? I think that... The differences are this, that DeVos, the Koch brothers, and the Waltons are dedicated libertarians, and they spend huge amounts of money, hundreds of millions of dollars every year to promote privatization, whether it's through charters or vouchers. The Walton family, which is worth about $150 billion, uh, has by itself opened one out of every four charters in America, and they've already committed to spend another $200 million this year. And Betsy DeVos has $440 million federal dollars to spend on new charters. So that's a, a lot of money to go into opening new charters. But then you have someone like Bill Gates, and Bill Gates is not a crazy libertarian as they are. But what he is, and I would say the same about Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. and uh, Jeff Bezos, is they believe in the marketplace. The marketplace has been very good to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they made a lot of money competing in the, in the open marketplace, and this is why... Bill Gates has poured money into charters, uh, most of which has been wasted. He's also poured money into testing and evaluating teachers by the test scores of their student, which has turned out to be a failed idea. I believe it's this fundamental belief that the market will sort everything out. And the problem for me with believing in the marketplace is the marketplace never produces equality. The marketplace, by its nature, produces winners and losers. And the winners will come out with the high scores, and they'll go on to Stanford and Harvard and great uh, selective schools. And the losers will be social problems. But with Bill Gates, maybe that goes to his motivation. But, you know, he's also, you know, I look at someone like him or Bloomberg as someone who's very data-driven. And sometimes the data drives them in a different direction. But do you have any inkling that they might, you know, veer from this very pro-charter stance? Well, I always hope that they will see the light. Because you did. (laughs) Well, I did. But, you know, Bill Gates and Michael Bloomberg represent a kind of mentality that I think of as the McKinsey mindset, Mm -hmm. which is look at the data and go where the data takes you. Now, the problem with the data is it's all based on standardized testing. And 
I've had long experience with looking at analyzing standardized testing data, and I've come to the conclusion that all it tells us is whether kids are wealthy or poor. So if if what they're measuring is wrong, their conclusions are wrong. Okay. And Bloomberg, as New York City mayor, he was great on the environment. He was great on smoking. He was great on gun control. He was a disaster in education because he, using data, closed lots of schools that were meeting the needs of huge numbers of kids, opened small schools that did not meet the needs of the ones who got pushed out of the big school. He demoralized the workforce tremendously. Lots of people were fired. Lots of schools were closed. But that's the way of disruption is throw everything up in the air and hope something better comes out of it. Uh, Bill Gates has launched a number of ideas in education. All of them have failed. And the Common Core was completely paid for by Bill Gates. And uh, in my view, it has been a massive failure because it was based on the same idea that he has in the software world, which is if you can get the data and if you can get the mechanics and you can get everybody on the same page, you'll have a national marketplace and all the vendors will provide uh, software or hardware that will make everything work. Uh, And he actually has given speeches in favor of standardization. And the thing that he doesn't seem to understand is that children do not operate like toasters. And teachers are not like electrical appliances. That whereas you may need standardization of electricity, which is the example he used, in order to plug something in and it'll work every time. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't work with kids. I mean, the people behind the Common Core believed that if everybody was studying the same thing at the same time and they had the common standards and common tests and common this and common that, all the kids would be raised up. Well, we've had 10 years of Common Core and we see no difference at all. The theory is on its face ridiculous because you can look at any classroom and say, well, the kids all have the same teacher. They're all using the same textbooks. They're all doing all the same things. And at the end of the year, there's huge differences among them. Right. And, I think, and the differences often go to exactly what you're talking about, which is income and home. And, and I think also it's unfair to judge kids by test scores because it's a very narrow me- measure. Yeah. Uh, there are kids who are way smarter than the people who make the test up. I mean, I've been close enough to the, to the test questions to say uh, some of them don't have a right answer. Yeah. I've seen test questions that had two right answers. I mean... This is such a narrow way of thinking. And to to tell kids for 12 years, the purpose of education is to pick the right answer on a test. That's that's not life. Life doesn't consist of picking the right answer. And what you really want to encourage them to do is to think of better questions. You might even say, here's a standardized question. How would you word this differently so that it actually went to something that you care about? And we don't do that. I want to ask you a couple things on what you just said. First of all, Bloomberg himself uh, you call him a disaster educationally. When he took office, the high school graduation rate in the city was overall 46.5%. When he left, it was 66%. The graduation rate for black students rose from 40 to 61, for Latino students from 37 to 65. That's a gain, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a gain, but it also depends on how you calculate that gain. And there's a lot of rigging of the data that goes on these days. We see graduation rates going up all over the place. And yet sometimes, and I'm not sure that this is true in New York, but it could be, uh, kids are taking a makeup, uh, which they do on a computer, where they can say, all right, you failed the course, but in a, one week on a computer, you can retake the course. It's called credit recovery. Yeah. So that there's a lot of that credit recovery going on. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's really that. hard to say if you look at where we were 10 years ago, uh, that all of this punishment of teachers and uh, 
stigmatizing of children has been a really good thing for American education. And I don't care if you look, whether it's the graduation rate, or the test scores, which have been completely flat. There are so many opportunities for rigging the data. It's something called the Campbell's Law. Campbell's Law says that when your life depends on the numbers, the numbers will change. And you can't use that as an accurate measure because people play with the numbers in order to get the gains and avoid the punishments. I think that we've lost sight of what education is. And we've lost sight of how do we develop character? How do we develop young people who care about making their society better? If you had one reform, if you had the ear of a principal, you could pick the education level, what would you tell him or her to do? Well, if I had vast power uh, <laughs> and I could change something in American education, I would say stop the standardized testing. Let's stop it for five years and let's see what happens. That's why I have a section of my book which celebrates the efforts of the parents in New York who opted out of the state test. They simply said 20% of the eligible kids, their parents said, we're not taking the test. And you know, when the numbers get high enough, there's nothing they can do to make you take them. Yeah. The book has a lot of profiles of citizen parent activists, a lot of your story of going from where you were to where you are now and your prescriptions about where we should go in the future. The book is Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools. Diane Ravitch, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And that's it for the Saturday show. Our assistant producer is Corey Wara, and the senior producer is Joel Patterson. We shan't join you Monday, as we will be not laboring on that day of labor. Talk to you Tuesday.